This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Wow, we've got a lot of news today. No doubt heard that President Obama has been uh, pushing for... Hello? I'm here. Do we have the music off? Are we good? Okay, good. Uh, President Obama is or has commuted the sentences or two very important uh, criminal sentences because of the politics around them, what surrounds the decision and what it tells us about this administration. We're getting a lot of truth at the end here that we've known all along, but now they're not even trying to hide it. So Chelsea Manning known now or formerly known as Bradley Manning, the WikiLeaks original big time leaker back in 2010. Uh, He has been released from prison. There's so much going on here. First of all, that I say he has become some statement of politics. And I have to say there is a very troubling, uh, there is a very troubling correlation between calling Chelsea Manning she and not being particularly bothered by the betrayal of the U.S. military, the betrayal of the United States government, the treason against the American people committed by this individual. So if you think Chelsea Manning or if you say that Chelsea Manning is a she, it also seems very likely, based on everything that I'm reading and seeing out there on the Internet, that you also believe that it wasn't really that big a deal, that, quote, she has suffered enough. Look, you can change your name, and people get to decide what their name is. And if someone wants to be called uh, Luke, Luke Skywalker of the Death Star, and that's their legal name, I guess we'll call them Luke Skywalker of the Death Star. Fine. Although I know that that's mixing up things for you Star Wars fans, but you know what I'm saying. If somebody wanted to be called that, I don't think they would care too much about the accuracy in the Star Wars storyline. But you can't change your gender. Why are we even having a discussion about that in the context of this commutation of Chelsea Manning's sentence? And by the way, if I slip into a she at some point, it's not because I think that Chelsea Manning is a woman. Chelsea Manning is a man. You can't. There is no such thing as as a gender change. They cannot physically do it. And the science on this starts to become a real problem for the left. Uh, No matter what I decided about my body or my mentality or my psychology, I will never be able to carry a child to term. I do not have XX chromosomes in my body. I am a male. This is just a biological reality. The same reality that Chelsea Manning has. 
and that the left gets so sneering and uppity and crazy about this just shows you they have they have lost their minds. This is not up for discussion. Science cannot transition a man into a woman. They can create the sort of uh, physical attributes that we liken to female. They can put hormones in the body, but they cannot actually do it. Not possible. And there's no scientist that I've read or heard of on the planet who can claim otherwise, but we're just supposed to go along with this. Bend the knee. The LGBTQ lobby in this country went right from gay marriage, now called marriage equality, to we have to celebrate, revere, and pay for gender dysphoria and the sex reassignment surgery that's supposed to come from it, even though there's really no such thing. And we all understand that this was, from the perspective of this commutation, essential. The left celebrates this. Democrats, by and large, celebrate the leniency given to Chelsea Manning. And we're going to have on later in the show today somebody who defends people in classified uh, breach cases and in publishing books when the agencies knows this area of law backwards and forwards. And so we'll talk about the reality of this, that Chelsea Manning was going to be up for parole relatively soon, had served seven years, was not pardoned, was commuted. I understand all of that. But did anyone really expect that if Chelsea Manning hadn't decided to change his name and start being referred to as her, that there would have been nearly so much sympathy on the left? This would have been a cause for them. Because the whistleblower defense that they tried, the whistleblower lie that's out there, just falls apart under scrutiny. Releasing hundreds of thousands of classified documents to a third party that then puts them on the open web for anyone to read which, oh, by the way, means that WikiLeaks has it, which means Russian intelligence has it, which also means that the redactions that WikiLeaks did for the public disclosure don't really much matter because who knows how many intelligence services and, yes, even maybe hackers on the inside had access to everything, the full names, the identities, everything that was in those uh, secret documents. You cannot claim to be a whistleblower when, one, you're not blowing the whistle on any specific activity. Two, you release a whole lot of activity that has nothing to do with blowing any whistles. And three, you haven't even read a vast majority of the classified information you are releasing. This was utterly reckless. It was indefensible. And Chelsea Manning even admitted that this was a big mistake and pled guilty. Is seven years enough? Is 10 years enough? Is 15 years enough? Usually we look to the courts to decide these matters. I would point out that there are people serving much stiffer sentences for doing a whole lot less. Maybe not with respect to a leak case specifically, but mandatory minimums on drug trafficking, any number of offenses that involve firearms, and you're looking at 10, 15 years in federal penitentiary, and there's no bloggers out there crying about how you need to be released, about the injustice of being a female in a male prison. I brought up on this show, I think a couple of years ago it was, 
that given the way the left is going, the best thing somebody who was sentenced to life in prison as a man could do is claim he's a woman and just keep putting off the surgery. If you're going to be a guy in federal prison, you'd much rather be the one guy in a female federal prison than in a federal prison surrounded by convicts, many of whom are violent and dangerous to you while you are incarcerated. Never mind the other benefits of being the only male in a female prison, which we could talk about another time. This was all politics for the Obama administration, just like everything is. And the media really has lost its mind. You have people saying that it was unfair to have Bradley, uh, Chelsea Manning in a prison for men. Brad, uh, Chelsea Manning is, is a man. This is, not up, this is not up for debate or discussion. It's not to be mean. It's not to hurt someone. If he wants to grow his hair long and wear a dress, and he's got the freedom to do all of that. Although in prison, you do lose a lot of your freedoms, it should be noted. You don't have the freedom to watch what you want to watch on TV. You don't have the freedom to have whatever objects and distractions you want in that cell. You are really the property of the state while you are in prison. And so this notion that it was a terrible injustice that Chelsea Manning couldn't grow his hair out longer, there's all sorts of things that you can and cannot do in prison. He also was under UCMJ because he's a member of the military, which changes it even more. But Chelsea Manning was not a whistleblower. That is an, in, that is an incorrect designation. Chelsea Manning could have been a whistleblower based on a much closer reading of a much smaller amount of the information that was released to WikiLeaks. But that's like saying, well, I I could have I I could have run in and stopped the orphanage from burning down, but instead I just decided that it would be better to burn it down faster because we don't want the fire department to waste too much time, so I just threw gasoline all over it. That that sorry, doesn't count. The coulda woulda shoulda in this is not compelling in the least. And in fact, what Manning did is the opposite of a whistleblower in that it served the interests of foreign powers. I need to know there's a, there's a piece in the Weekly Standard that says that Al-Qaeda was very interested in WikiLeaks of the, of the Manning documents. That bin Laden himself on his digital files had some of the WikiLeaks trove. They really wanted to know this stuff. Aiding and abetting the enemy. People don't like the term treason because there was a time, and it still is on the books, when you'd be shot for treason. It's a very serious offense. And yet here we are in a clear-cut case of treason. But because the individual who pled guilty and was guilty, and there's really no debate about that, says that he is now a she, there is this tremendous outpouring of sympathy from the left, and they treat him like he's something of a hero. A hero for what? For whom? How? Was fully aware of what he was doing. Didn't think that there were pink elephants flying around his head telling him that this was the way that he would solve world problems and he'd become some sort of messiah on his own planet or something. I mean, this is not a person who was deranged. This is just, although I think his mental health has now, for the purposes of helping to get him out of prison, been called into question a lot. And yet here I am, falling into the trap. And I will deal with this on the other side of the break. 
spending more time or at least spending my first bit of time talking to you about Chelsea Manning instead of what I view as a much more serious breach lapse in judgment from the Obama administration. Although you could also just argue that this is the Obama administration showing us its true colors once again. And that is the commutation of Oscar Lopez Rivera, F-A-L-N terrorist. Commuting the sentence of a terrorist. Why would he do that? What do we know about the F-A-L-N? What possible rationale could there be for leniency for these horrific, stupid, pointless, vile terrorists in the FALN. It's it's one thing to be a terrorist for a group that actually has a constituency. Puerto Rico wants to stay by every referendum, by every vote, by every poll that that anyone can point to in recent memory would like to stay as a part of the US. It's a good it's a good gig. And these Cuban trained murderers and assassins trained by Cuban intelligence, these communist Marxist nutbags thought that by blowing up a few innocent people here and there, they were going to achieve some glorious revolution for Puerto Rico that would break it away from America's yoke. Please. Not only bloodthirsty terrorists, but idiots on top of it. This guy was a member of that group. Hey, we'll get into this and much more, team. We've got a packed show today. I'm going to hit a break now. We'll be right back. So there's this group, the F-A-L-N. Many of you have, I'm sure, heard of it, but a lot of people know very little about it. The acronym is Fuerzas Armadas de Liberación Nacional. So it's the Armed Forces of National Liberation, and it is a Puerto Rican terrorist group. That's all it is. Uh, and, oh, of course, Lin, the, the, here we go. I mean, this uh, Hamilton, I haven't seen it, but I know it's crap, but I'll have to see it to talk about how it's the most overrated crap on the planet, but I refuse to pay $700. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of the Broadway hit Hamilton, took to Twitter on Tuesday, according to Newsbusters, here to celebrate Barack Obama's commutation of Oscar Lopez Rivera's prison sentence. Sobbing with gratitude here in Lopez, here in London, Oscar Lopez Rivera is coming home. Thank you, POTUS. That's from the creator of the hit musical Hamilton <sighs> God. all right what is the FALN that this Mr. Lopez belonged to was a leader of let me borrow from a daily news account from back in 1975 the place was Francis uh, Francis Tavern the historic red and yellow brick restaurant on Pearl Street, where, as any tour book will tell you, the most famous of American freedom fighters, George Washington, said farewell to his officers in 1783. History would again be made at that tavern on a mild winter day 192 years later. A lively crowd of Wall Streeters and business executives were having lunch in the Anglers and Tarpon Club 
in a second-floor dining room adjacent to the main building. Among them were Harold Sherburn, 66, Frank Connor, 33, two executives, James Gazork and Alejandro Berger, 28 and 32, respectively, who uh, were there for their last meal. At 1.29 p.m., according to the Daily News account, a tremendous explosion Individuals rocked the building, and businesses sending with tax shivers problems. up to 60 Listen carefully. floor if you cafeteria owe over $10, of a nearby Chase Manhattan taxes, or have unfiled tax returns, we Sherburn, can help you take Connor, back control. and Berger died on the spot. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, Firefighters and file criminal charges. Utter havoc. Take control of your tax blood and dust-covered men and women many business attires, writhing in agony in the streets, or shrieking under piles of rubble, Within 15 minutes, dazed and screaming victims, one of them with an arm tore him off, were being carried away. The Associated Press received a phone call. The caller boasted that the bomb was the handiwork of the FALN, the Armed Forces of Puerto Rican National Liberation. In a note, police found that a phone booth nearby, the FALN wrote, we take full responsibility for the especially detonated bomb that exploded at Francis Tavern with reactionary corporate executives inside. All right, end quote. Why would anybody ever receive leniency who was involved in that kind of an act? Why would the president of the United States commute the sentence of an individual who had a hand in those kinds of horrific terrorist attacks? The FLN took credit for 130 bombings across the United States, including one in the Mobile Building on 42nd Street in New York City that killed an attorney, and in Chicago, Washington, D.C., Newark, and Miami. They evaded capture for years. Obama uses his power as commander-in-chief to let scum like Lopez out. Lin-Manuel Miranda celebrates that scum being let out of prison, I, I mean, there should be a boycott of that stupid Hamilton show. And I don't call for boycotts lightly. I think boycotts are generally counterproductive and childish. But in this case, look, I'm a one-man boycott. I'm not going to. Now, I said I was to see it before. I don't want to go see it. You know why the FALN terrorists before were pardoned? Tells you a lot about how Democrats operate. Bill Clinton did it over the objection of pretty much all of the law enforcement community, intel community, you name it. You know why Bill Clinton pardoned almost all of the FALN terrorists, except for this one, that Obama is now commuted, or they were commuted, commuting the sentence, because he refused to take responsibility in writing for what he did. Wouldn't take the deal. The Clintons wanted, or Bill Clinton wanted to help his wife, our would-be president of the United States, Madam Secretary Hillary Clinton, wanted to help her win a Senate seat in New York and figured, I've got an idea. Let's buy off the Puerto Rican vote in New York City, which is considerable. There are about a million people of Puerto Rican descent in New York City. Let's buy off the Puerto Rican vote somehow or some portion of it by freeing these Puerto Rican terrorists. That was the Clinton calculation back in the very end of Bill Clinton's presidency. The Democrats can't pretend to take national security seriously because they don't. And that's why I don't want to hear any more whining. Oh, Russian hacking and Russia's coming for us. Yeah, you take Russia seriously. Maybe you should take this other stuff seriously, too. You clowns. We'll be right back.
All right, team, we're joined now by Mark Zaid. He's an attorney who handles cases involving national security, security clearances, government investigations, media freedom of information act requests, and whistleblowing. You're a former government employee, and uh, Uncle Sam comes after you, rightly or wrongly, uh, for saying things you're not supposed to or saying things that everybody knows in a book that somehow Uncle Sam still has a problem with. Mark's the kind of guy who can actually help you out because he knows these things. Mark, thanks for calling in. My pleasure, Buck. All right. Bunch of big, uh, well, some pardons and some commutations yesterday. The major headline, although I think in some ways the FALN uh, commutation is, is a bigger issue, major one is Chelsea Manning. You handle these kinds of cases all the time. Uh, you and I had a, a little a little back and forth on Twitter, and I wanted to give you a, a, a platform and a place to sort of air out uh, as much as you want of what happened here. You think that given what how other leak prosecutions go or have gone and, and the sentences attached to them, Seven years, you say, is enough. Please go, take the floor. Explain. Tell us why. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. So when it comes to these Espionage Act prosecutions for leaks, not for spying, there have been not that many. And we hear this fallacy about the Obama administration prosecuting more than any other administration combined, which factually is true. But you have to put it into a context. When I've been handling these cases starting from the 90s, the Clinton administration would have loved to have prosecuted any number of leakers of classified information. They just never had the evidence. As, as we entered into the digital age, reporters and leakers have not taken the precautions that they needed to, so they've left a trail, and, and evidence was allowed to be accumulated. And that was what was one of the cases in Manning. Manning had correspondence uh, over email while he was in Iraq with, with a blogger, and that led to the blogger then turning manning in uh, about the leaks to wikileaks now the information that manning leaked it depends on who you talk to but for the most part the government's in agreement that the the level of information that was leaked and by no means do i condone it that this was the saddest of all the cases manning could have gone through proper whistleblowing channels whether internally with the army or coming to an attorney like me and quite frankly, I think everything would have worked out perfectly fine for Manning. The fact that they went on, that he at the time went on his own and, and leaked the information in the manner that they was done uh, undercut everything from the legitimacy. And it turned out that the majority of the information that was leaked turned out to only show that the U.S. government was doing exactly what it was saying it was doing pro- publicly. It actually supports well, the information. But, Mark, doesn't that undercut the the designation of Manning as a whistleblower at all? First of all, the scope, I mean, the breadth of the information, hundreds of thousands of documents, which we all know he didn't read. So he just released a whole bunch of stuff out there, which on its face is reckless. And then I still want to know what was what was he blowing the whistle about, that there's secret diplomatic relationships with governments all over the world, that the U.S. military is prosecuting a war and that war is a dangerous messy and and hellish business what was the whistle being even theoretically what was he what did he think he was blowing the whistle on i thought it was just because he wanted to start a global conversation or something along those lines was the quote that i had heard right and this is where there's a parallel between snowden and manning the number of documents taken are just physically impossible to have read so that meant they just grabbed this information and then just leaked it without any concern as to what was in it. Now, as far as I know, with respect to Manning, 
there were some aspects of it that I think would have been taken seriously by any inspector general office or member of Congress, predominantly the Apache Bush, where the Reuters journalist was killed. You got it? Right. You still here? Yeah, sorry. We thought you cut out. Go ahead. No, that's okay. And that Apache helicopter video raised some legitimate concerns. It ended up not being war crimes just by a legal matter. Uh, I think there were some aspects of abuse by Iraqi Iraqi military uh, and whether or not the U.S. was complicit in it. There were legitimate questions. But I agree that, for one, everybody should understand, if you don't blow the whistle legally, you're not a whistleblower. Now, that may be a distinction without a difference, meaning you don't have any protections under the law if you don't follow the law in, in uh, leaking the information. You cannot leak it to the media if it's classified and be a legitimate lawful whistleblower. Now, the seven-year sentence was the longest any leaker, actually 35-year sentence, seven longest any leaker has ever received. If you look at by the basis of the damage that was done, which even the U.S. says was minimal, the unique circumstances with Manning as to how he, then she, was treated in prison. Even the judge agreed that uh, the treatment was completely inappropriate, make stand naked in solitary confinement. Manning was even given credit for that uh, by, by length of terms of the sentence. There's a very unique circumstance that, that they... Is he cutting in and out, or am I the only one that... I, I can't hear what he's saying. Uh, Mark, where, where, where are you? we got to get you to a, we want to hear what you're saying, but you're cutting in and out. So um, are you driving? It sounds like you're driving, which means we may be uh, out yeah, of luck I'm here. Sorry. I, I, am, I am driving in, in right by the Washington Monument at the moment. So this, oh, gotcha. Okay. This is, uh, but, for, but let me ask you, John, John, Curi- John Kiriakou was threatened with 30 years in prison for far less than what Chelsea Manning did. Now, he didn't get 30 now, years. Nope. Uh, John, who once was my client, and in fact I represented one of the journalists he leaked classified information to in that case, he ended up getting about three, three and a half years, and then he was sent to a halfway house at a, at a time, the, uh, the time of his sentence. The, now, he pled guilty under the Intelligence Identities Protection Act uh, for revealing a, a covert officer's name. Uh, I... I would challenge anyone to tell me why John Kiriakou was a whistleblower. Interesting. So, so he was—he is not a whistleblower because that's his uh, no. his whole thing is that he was—it was retribution, right, for for water for waterboarding or his stand on waterboarding. But it sounds like he just made a mistake. Any, I, I have read the emails that led to his conviction and his pleading guilty. He's not blowing the whistle on anything. He was one of the first CIA officials to come on record and reveal information that we already knew. That's not whistleblowing. He never did anything internally to blow the whistle on anything or anyone. I think he was targeted because he pissed off officials within the CIA. There's no doubt about that. I think he was treated unfairly in the prosecution and by the sentence that he received. But that's part and parcel different from being a whistleblower. Too often, those who are supportive of these individuals who have been prosecuted have linked 
if you leak classified information to a journalist, you are a whistleblower. And that's not necessarily the case. Now, the problem with Manning's case, and I think, if, and we'll jump to Cartwright because I think that's even more problematic. Yeah, I want to ask you. I want to ask you about Cartwright too. But go ahead. Yeah, the problem with Manning's case is that it led. He and the case of Thomas Drake led and created Ed Snowden. We have to look at some part of the U.S. government's fault or complicity in this, and not setting up a system that would have encouraged people like Manning to come through the chain of command and raise their concerns instead of going elsewhere. The Cartwright case, the pardon, I think is even more problematic because the message that the Cartwright case and General Petraeus's case sends is that if you, the higher ranking you are, the more lenient you are treated, where it should be the top down. It should be those at the highest level are setting the example for those below. Now, there may have been reasons why to be more lenient on Cartwright, not only his contribution to the country, but his age, his medical condition, They're just as what was taken into consideration for Manning. But to pardon him outright, rather than say, let him, he was already pled guilty, let him be sentenced and then commute the sentence, if that was going to be possible, because obviously Obama would be out of office, much in the same way that Sandy Berger was, uh, former national security advisor, or uh, Scooter Libby with President Bush. Uh, their sentence were, co were commuted, not their crimes pardoned. The, and it's the message that is being sent by successive administrations in the arena of national security whistleblowers that literally, the wrong message, that creates people like Ed Snowden. People who we don't want, uh, we don't want coming forward uh, in the manner that they are, that could be destructive to the national security interests of the United States. All right, Mark Zaid is an attorney who handles cases involving national security, security clearance, and government investigations and whistleblowing. Uh, Mark, where can people go to read more of your work, or where should they follow you on Twitter? Yep, they can just go to my website, markzaid.com, M-A-R-K-Z-A-I-D. Uh, and I think my Twitter handle is Mark S. Zaid Esquire. All right. Mark, thank you very much for joining. Appreciate it. Anytime, Buck. Sorry for the communication difficulties. All good. Thanks for calling in, buddy. Uh, team, the phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. All right, we've got Joe in California on the line. Joe, you're on the Buck Saxon Show. Welcome. Joe? Shields high, Buck. Hey, what's up, Hello? Joe? Shields high. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, good to talk to you. Um, so these uh, commutations of these sentences, um, they're the final disgraceful acts of what, in my opinion, has been a graceless and disgraceful presidency. I'm glad you, you spoke so forcefully about how Bradley Manning was not a whistleblower, but more or less, I would, my read on him was basically a bitter, disgruntled, uh, vindictive employee just randomly exposing anything and everything he could get his hands on with no real, uh, no real intent to sh expose anything that was illegal or certainly unconstitutional, but just get as much out there as he could. And now uh, the president left him off at the same time that 
the federal government is persecuting people for refusing to bake cakes, um, suing the little sisters of the poor. You know, that's the America that we we live in today. And <clears throat> that is going to be President Obama's true true legacy. Uh, you know, I, I thought your last guest had a lot of good comments, and obviously he knows a lot more about the situation than I do from from my rather distant perspective. However, um, I, I still haven't seen anything, and maybe maybe Bradley Manning's crimes weren't that egregious. I don't know, but uh, in in terms of the impacts that what he released did have, it because of the classification issues and the confidentiality and agents still in the field, all those sorts of things, it, it's pretty tough to prove a case like that in court because you don't want to export, expose those other things. So. You know, um, you're a lot closer to it than I am. You know a lot more about it than I do. But I would have to say that what you have said today about it is I agree with that 100 percent. Well, one of the problems you have here is that to do a full damage assessment, which the intelligence community and and the military would have to do and and the diplomatic community and State Department as well. When there's a breach of this magnitude, it's really even hard to, to comprehend what a damage assessment would look like. And then when you get beyond that and get into a public prosecution, uh, this is I think they call it gray mail, uh, where you don't where you, you you say that you have to for a real defense, you'd have to air more information in the public than the government wants to. And they don't want to do that. And so they either settle out of court or they try to come up with something as an explanation for, um, uh, you know, they, they try to come up with some means of not releasing all that information publicly. And that can be to the defendant's benefit because if it's a highly classified program or if there are sources and methods involved that would be necessary for the prosecution uh, there there are reasons why the government wouldn't go forward with that uh, in the Bradley Manning case though we keep hearing he's a whistleblower he's not blowing the whistle on anything he it was what he did was quite honestly childish and there except that it had very grave consequences but I mean his mentality was well there's bad things happening and look at this diplomatic conversation behind closed doors and let's just show the world everything and let the world figure it out. He really is a, is an early devotee of what has become a, a cover story for WikiLeaks, but this notion of WikiLeaks as a radical transparency organization. Well, it's radical transparency, but only for American institutions and uh, American government activity, uh, not for Russian or Chinese or anyone else anywhere in the world. So I think that tells us a lot about what the true intent is. But he was one of those people, and that's really the justification in, in his mind or in the minds of his supporters for what he did. I just also think you can't overstate how much sympathy he gets now because he's LBGTQ, uh, a member of the LGBTQ community, right? Yeah, now everyone, now everyone talks about him like he's some sort of a, a civil rights hero or something because he's transitioning to a woman while in prison. And you have all these people that are correcting me on Twitter and elsewhere saying, well, don't call him he, he's a she. Really, that, so now that's become the, now that's the issue. That's the, 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 the central point of all of this. So I, I just think that's the whole thing the is. Issue, but uh, that's always the issue. Hang tough on I, that. I, I know. Well, Hang if you listen to the that. left, that, that is always the issue. Joe in California, great to talk to you, my friend, Shields High. Uh, team, we've got a lot more coming in an hour or two here in just a few minutes. 888-900-3393. Uh, also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We're going to talk a bit about inauguration chaos. Is it going to happen? That and more coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. As always, the inauguration is coming up here later on in the week, and we are expecting, or at least we've been told to expect, based on the reports, that there could be some mayhem. Our next guest is well known to many, if not all of you, I'm sure, James O'Keefe. He is an award-winning journalist and writer. He's the founder and president of both Project Veritas and Project Veritas Action, nonprofit organizations dedicated to investigating corruption, dishonesty, waste, and fraud in both public and private institutions. Uh, James, good to have you back. Thanks for joining. Hey, Buck. Great to be with you. All right, what's the latest in what's what's the latest that you've been up to, James? Looks like we could be expecting, or at least perhaps should expect, some some rough stuff down at the inauguration. I don't even know where to begin. Um, how many things that we've shown and exposed and reported on and reactions to it? But last three days, we have released a series of videos. The first one showed butyric gas. These anti-fascists—they call themselves anti-fascists, but they're really more like fascists because. They're, they're, they're planning to gas through an HVAC system of the National Press Club, one of the events in D.C. Uh, there's also this, this attempt to um, shut down trains by, by taking these metal chains and attaching them to, chain, to trains, metro trains in D.C. Uh, there is discussion about punching people in the throat, people they determine are Nazis. Of course, anyone attending a Trump inauguration event would be considered a Nazi in their book. And these groups are all doing this under the umbrella of Disrupt J20, which is the loose-knit group of groups that are going down to D.C. to openly shut down the inauguration. There's nothing wrong with peaceably protesting or even civil disobedience, but they're talking about wreaking havoc and violence. So today, or actually two days ago, we went to the FBI, the Secret Service, but today we got a call from the U.S. Attorney's Office. My lawyer got a call. They're looking at the full tapes and may, in fact, be proceeding with an arrest or two. Um, and we also have a report from U.S. News and World Report saying that the Disrupt J20 organizers are kind of scaling back a little bit in light of these secret videotapes. They're, they're afraid of, uh, of doing too much. So we, we may have avoided some disaster. Knock on wood here. We'll see what happens uh, tomorrow and Friday. And there may be usage of stink bombs. I'm seeing some specifics here. National Review has also covered your work, a piece by DeRoy uh, Murdoch. But there's some there's some really, well, like I said, some nasty stuff that they're talking about. And you've got some specifics here, including on tape. Can we play the audio? Oh, yeah. Throat mm-hmm. uh, punching is, is probably a good thing. And we have a plan for how to shut down uh, a metro. It takes 15 seconds, and everyone can leave. Literally, it can't go anywhere. Can you tell us what's sort of being said there? Because it's a little tough yeah, on little radio without the... on the radio, but he's talking about, well, you didn't hear the butyric acid part. What you just heard was they were going to attach chains to the train where you can't use a bolt cutter to cut through the um, the chain. So... It's it's clearly terrorism. This guy's name is Lagba Karafor. Now, what's interesting is usually when you're exposed like this, and the, the, right as I speak, the, the terrorism task force is meeting about this, and they're looking at the films, and they're trying to determine um, whether they're going to press charges. 
you, this is the part of the movie when you're supposed to like bleach your hair and you know g- g- change your ID and get out of Dodge. These guys are on Twitter right now tweeting at me and attacking me and def- you know um, it's pretty remarkable the, the the arrogance and the hubris of these organizers. Um, they're, they're breaking the law when they're conspiring to do this. The tape you did not hear was the part where they're talking about butyric acid. That can that's flammable gas. It could cause r- rashes. It could cause asthma attacks. And if there's a thousand people cramped in the National Press Club, they could all kind of storm out of there and stampede one another. And it's actually considered a weapon of mass destruction under DC legal code. So um, I I hope that they make arrests. I've done everything in my power. I have emails all their plans and and some of their they call it reconnaissance where they go to the buildings and they scout the locations and i provided all of that to law enforcement um but i think they're going to be scaling back slightly in light of the revelations i think they're going to they're they're, they're they, for example the the deplora ball as it's called this is the event tomorrow night found on their registry these anti-fascists had signed up and they have refunded their tickets so maybe we avoided some disaster tomorrow night. So you think that by exposing this, there's a level of, of preventative, uh, or there's a level of prevention that's been achieved here because these groups now realize that there will be, not only will people be paying attention to everything that happens with the anti-Trump protests at the inauguration, but if we mm-hmm. already know some of what is planned and some of what and some of who may be behind it, it's a lot harder for them afterwards to say, oh, well, it's just it was a peaceful protest that got out of hand. Right. This is what we always hear is that, oh, well, there were a few bad actors, but overall it was peaceful protest. We see this with other leftist groups. In this case, no, no, the plan from from go, as it sounds, we're hearing on these tapes is to do things that are illegal. I mean, you pointed out what butyric. Uh, what is it? I mean, it's called butyric, butyric, butyric acid. acid. What would they be doing with butyric acid? They would be putting it in the HVAC system, the ventilation system of the National Press Club. This is their plan, is to is to cause chaos and wreak havoc. They want to shut down the inauguration. They're open about that. They just don't tell you how you, how they're going to do it. I mean, you could you could lie in the street. That's that's not going to harm anybody. It's going to be annoying, and that's what they would. I, I think that would that's what they would lead you to believe. But if you go inside their meetings as we did, you 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 you're, we're showing what they're going to do. They're going to put acid bombs in, the, in an HVAC shaft. And by the way, back when Obama was inaugurated, I, I don't remember any Tea Party people or other people who are doing things like this. I don't remember anything like this. Um, it's it's what funny can you, how what is, we're, we're, we're considered the fascists, you know? You know, what can you tell us about these groups and, and to whatever degree you're comfortable sharing? How did, how did your group stumble upon all this activity? Yeah, well, we, um, we, we, what we do is kind of like one-half investigative journalism and one-half intelligence gathering. We build relationships with people, or as in the intelligence community, they call that cultivation. So we, we just build relationships with people. We get them to trust us, and we spend sometimes months undercover like we did back in the election with the Democracy Partners, with the big story about violence at Trump rallies where we exposed what they were doing there, inciting violence. And we and we do not we do not ourselves incite violence. We never suggest violence. There are some reports out right now saying that I'm, I've incited this. We never said anything about it. The only thing we did is establish ourselves as trusted left wing people. We you know we really we were they call themselves comrades. This is how these guys talk. 
and, and we we said we were ideological sympathetic and they they trusted us and because when you, people trust you they confide in you and they actually this anti it's called the anti-fascist group they told us uh, or antifa as it's known they, they told us they told my undercover that um that they really did confide in, in him they told others in the group that they confided in him so this was not a counter sting it was not they weren't feeding us false information they really they really told us what they were going to do and and now i think they're going to have to abandon this plot because there's just no way they can pull it off tomorrow night with law enforcement and their tickets being refunded this is anti-fascist is one of many groups under disrupt a 20 uh, uh league of conservation voters is another one in california that actually does get tom steyer money and george soros money uh, there are other groups ata um, socialist collective these are all far left groups, some of whom are connected to the D.C. establishment and some of whom are just sort of fringe radical groups. And who are who are you expecting, even including groups that are not a part of your expose here? Are, are there some groups that are going to engage in activities that you're, you're quite certain will be disruptive? And who are they and what are you? You know, there's a difference between putting butyric acid in a ventilation system and uh-huh. lying down in the street, which we know Black Lives Matter has done, Occupy Wall Street has done. They've done it in places all across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, should we expect that some of those groups, not the ones that necessarily you expose here, are going to be acting out as the social justice warriors we know them to be? I think they'll all do that. I think I think that's that's something as long as nobody is harmed. I think I think it'll be annoying. But I I I, I have nothing. I have nothing against legal legal um even I'm, I'm, I myself have been accused of breaking all types of laws. I've, I've never, in fact, broken laws as a journalist. But I, I am for peaceful, sometimes peaceful civil disobedience. That is not what we are talking about here. Um, they say in these meetings openly that they w- will use any means necessary. One of the guys, Luke Kuhn, in the video says, we will burn down your house. We will fight the cops. They're open about what they want to do. They're resisting arrest. I mean, harming people. He at one point in the video, this guy named Colin Dunn. It's right in frame. You can see his face. He says one of the added advantages of setting off the sprinkler alarms is people will be freezing cold when you get them wet. I mean, if that isn't an example of assault, I don't know what is. People are going to get hypothermia. I don't think it'll be that cold. It'll be 50 degrees or 45 degrees. But you want to get people wet so they can freeze to, to death or, or or go to the hospital. I, I, I'm only reporting what I see, and what I'm seeing on the inside of these groups is a desire to harm people and to shut down using any means necessary the inauguration. The fact these guys are tweeting right now, they're tweeting and they're not like getting out of Dodge, is an example of the fact that there's no one in the media holding any of them accountable. Um, this, these videos haven't been played on television, so unless there's pressure put on law enforcement, I don't – I don't, I don't. This guys might go ahead and harm people, and if that happens, I'm going to have to go out and say the media was was culpable. They were complicit in not um, in not blowing the whistle. Um, we're blowing the whistle on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, but that's that. Those are my platforms. That's the best I can do. Law enforcement, though, it sounds like from what you've said, they are taking this seriously, or or are they? It's hard to say. My lawyer um, called them. Uh, two days ago, and they called them right back. Well, f- well, first of all, they're definitely taking it seriously. Whether they whether they can do anything to stop them, it, it depends upon the law, mens rea, and all that stuff. I'm not an attorney, uh, 
But they did. They, they, the only thing they were concerned about is whether this was a counter sting. And they, they told me it wasn't because uh, if you look at the tapes and you look at the evidence, they're, they're clearly not feeding me false information. They, they're clearly speaking to me for months and trusting me and so forth. But they, what they told me was that our evidence uh, confirmed what they had been investigating. And they actually had these guys' names in front of us when we met with them. They had their last names. They had their files, and they also said that they were themselves investigating these things before we came forward. They, don't, they just don't have videotape. Sometimes we can do things that law enforcement, for whatever reason, can't do. They just didn't get access in the way we got access to these groups. So we were kind of synergistic with what the FBI and the Secret Service were doing over the last few weeks looking into this. James O'Keefe is an award-winning journalist and writer. He is the founder and president of Project Veritas. You can learn more about his work at projectveritas.com. James, thank you for your work on this. and appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Team, phone lines open 888-900-3393. Be right back. Team, we've got Fox News reporting that the Pentagon recommended against the Manning commutation and... uh, by the way, I agree with the General Cartwright pardon. Uh, I think that, and there was already a, a, people keep saying that there needs to be a commutation for Petraeus. Petraeus didn't serve any prison time. So what are you going to commute there? Are you going to pardon him entirely? That means, remember, a pardon, this is a very important distinction. I know many of you are aware of it, but it's just important to keep in mind. A pardon means, for all intents and purposes, you never even committed the it's done there's no it's not on your record you are not guilty of anything anymore it's a it's an incredible power given to the president of the united states it's it's as though it didn't happen not on your record your voting rights restored you can own a firearm again you're not you don't have to list that you're a felon or anything a pardon is clean slate commutation is you got 10 years we'll we'll let it go at at 3 or you know you got 30 years we'll let it go at 7 that's commutation it's leniency as opposed to uh, clean slate. Pardon really is clean slate situation. And I think that the general, this is the stuff that really drives people nuts, especially those who work or worked in the defense and intelligence side of things. When is, when is information that's in, that's completely in the public sphere? When can you talk about it? And when can you not? And uh, some government officials act like complete lunatics over this one where you know, the drone program was classified, I think technically still, although I don't know because I wasn't in it anymore, even after Obama was discussing it on Google chats with people and talking about where it was happening, and it was still classified program, though. Well, okay, so if someone talks about the drone program, they still can, they can be charged criminally, even though the commander-in-chief is talking about it openly on Google chat, like hanging out with people? Ah, uh, that's, that's where you get it. There, there are places where this law and these these the way it's applied and the way the department of justice goes about these things are nonsensical and unfair and with cartwright it sounds like his problem wasn't that he disclosed his problem was that he lied to the fbi but then you get into the well should he have been on the hot seat for not even disclosing so i think that that's i'm okay with that i i tend towards mercy on all of these things because i think that people make mistakes and i think that it's a very high standard if you want to be particularly a letter of the law. It's a very high and honestly a a impossible standard to truly decipher when it comes to classified at a certain level and in some cases. But what Manning did is just 
uh, here's all this classified stuff. I'm just going to release it all because I think it'll be interesting and uh, it'll be cool. And what Snowden did is I'm going to change the world and have a civil rights or sorry, a civil liberties conversation in America and with the globe by we still don't know. Did he take a million documents or, or a few documents with him to Russia? You know, there's all this debate. It should be pretty straightforward, but it's not. So that's an, another instance of this. That's not. And then we talked about these cases where people say it's whistleblowing. Well, whistleblowing is there's activity that's illegal that's going on that's being covered up as though it as though it's classified or is hiding behind classification statutes to keep it from public view. That's whistleblowing. There was the NSA whistleblower. That was whistleblowing. And by the way, the government pulled him out of the shower with agents kicking in the door of his home with MP5s. And he was blowing the whistle. He did go through channels. He did expose a program that raised constitutional issues. It was unclassified, and they still went after him. So I am very aware of the other side of this, too. And I don't want any of you to be surprised if one day, under a Trump or a future administration, I'm sitting here saying this is tyranny because the government does engage in tyrannical behavior sometimes to cover its own butt, Republican and Democrat. I still think that Scooter Libby should have been entirely pardoned. Not, not He was commuted, not pardoned. I think he should have been pardoned. So I'm not one of these people that just, oh, national security. You know, there are some, maybe even a Republican congressman or two, who just go on TV and just want to sound like Attila the Hun on this stuff all the time. Traitors, treason, people could be shot for this in the past, rah, rah, rah. Okay, what Manning did was was bad. This is a real case of it. What Snowden did was bad. Not all bad, but it doesn't matter. Right? If if you're robbing a bank and you save somebody's life who's having a heart attack, nice that you save somebody's life for having a heart attack, but you still robbed a bank. And if you caused the heart attack by robbing the bank, I don't know how thankful we're supposed to be that you saved the person from the heart attack. Similar things here with, well, there's some whistleblowing for Manning that could have been done and Snowden started an interesting conversation. Okay, that's a part of it, but what about the rest of it? Have to be accountability for that, too. So I just want to give you a, a fuller picture of how I view all these things. And the government sometimes way overreaches on this stuff. Manning is not a case of that. Team, we've got a, a new guest joining us here on the program, Kirsten Coppell. She is listed as one of Newsmax 30 most influential Republicans under 30. She is the founder and president of Galt Solutions, a boutique political consulting company in Miami, Florida. Uh, she has worked as the national youth director for the presidential campaign of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and she is involved with Generation Opportunity. Kirsten, thank you for calling in. Thanks for having me on. All right. Talk to us about the beginning of the Trump administration. We've got the inauguration on Friday. He's going to be officially the commander in chief. As a millennial who looks at the future of the GOP specifically and what could be done, what should be done in order to get it all moving in the right directions, what are your initial thoughts about a Trump presidency for millennials? Sure. So, um, yes, as you might have mentioned, Trump will be inaugurated on, on Friday, and I think all of us are anxiously um, anticipating what that first 100 days will look like. He outlined a few months ago in November what his plans were, um, but we'll see what we can actually get done with Congress and what's on their top priorities for us as millennials. And I really think that, you know, this applies for all the for, for everyone. 
I really believe that Trump's legacy will rest on whether or not he fulfills his campaign promises and how he improves the economy. So for us, at the end of the day, it's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. And of course, you know, what is he doing to create a more business friendly environment? Um, you know, we, we saw this is obviously a crazy election cycle. It was all kinds of twists and turns up until the last day. Um, but ultimately, people vote with their wallets and Americans were worse off under the Obama administration. Um, ACA, his signature health care law, turned out to be not so affordable. And that's why Americans chose a new direction. It certainly did not work for uh, young Americans who did not sign up for Obamacare, no matter how hard they tried to market it and jam, jam that down our throats. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think that that's definitely at the top of the list is repealing, um, repealing and replacing Obamacare. Do you think that Trump, as a person who is very adept at social media, his Twitter account is like a, a bolt of lightning from Zeus up on Olympus for much of the media. They freak out every time he tweets now because he's able to determine much of the news cycle by writing in a, what is it 140 characters or less and it doesn't have to right. go through a press office it doesn't have to go through anything does he have a unique opportunity as the soon-to-be republican president within the party because and as leader of the party to reach younger uh, younger people across the country i mean we're always being told on the media side of things you got to be on snapchat you've got to be using all the different social media platforms Trump is, what, 70? And yet he, he tweets like somebody that is, is following the latest in Ariana Grande's career and you know knows what's going on with Kanye. He's much more tapped into the social media side of things than really any president before him. Is, is that an opportunity or do you see that as a risk? No, I see it as an opportunity. And you said it perfectly. I mean, I think that he's able to break through the mainstream media, which hasn't been 100% fair to him um, and either has celebrities and pop culture, right? So he is able to break through that by, by going directly to the people. Um, and I think that's really important in breaking through this kind of snowflake culture that we have with young people. Um, I think that, you know, with recent years, college campuses have become this petri dish for indoctrination. Um, there's free speech zones. They're put in place all over the country. There's no diversity of thought. That's all prohibited. Uh, and the same, you know, the same thing goes for really what we're seeing in a lot of media. Um, so I think it's really good that he's actually able to go right to the people. Now, of course, are some of his things that he says controversial or could he use better tone? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but that's not why he got elected, right? Let's be real. He got elected because he blew up political uh, correctness. And, and that's, that's what Americans wanted this time around. While I, I did work for Governor Bush, as you had mentioned, and, you know, us and, and the other 16 candidates uh, were busy trying to uh, get all of the elected official endorsements, um, you know, and check off all of those boxes. And that was really just uh, another nail in the coffin for each one of those candidates that just aligned themselves with more of the establishment while Trump was bypassing all of those formalities, didn't care about any endorsements um, from any elected officials, didn't need them, and just tweeted and talked to the people. Now, you are the president of Galt Solutions, which is a boutique political consulting company. What kind of things do you do as a political consultant? I'm actually just curious. I don't I've, I've never worked as one. I've worked as a government employee before. What do you do? Sure. So um, I started my career really, really young. Um, I was I was I was basically starting to work um, through through college. And as soon as I got into college, 
Um, I was working for, I was interning for Senator Rubio, did internships in D.C. Um, I started working on the Newt Gingrich presidential campaign last cycle. Um, and then I just decided that I was going to open up my own little boutique consulting firm because there was a gap that I noticed um, in the Republican, conservative, libertarian world. They were not able to reach and engage young people and minority coalitions. And it was something that was needed. Um, I believe our message was something that was, uh, uh, millennials were very ripe for, uh, less government in their lives, uh, more economic opportunity and prosperity, less, less regulations. These are things that we want. Um, you know, this is back to the Uber ride-sharing economy. You can definitely see that this is a space that we like to be in. We don't want to be pushed out by all, these red, by all this red tape. Um, so that being said, that message was not communicated to my generation and i wanted to help be a voice um for for young people for other young women to provide diversity of thought and to help campaigns and nonprofits um message that better so i did start my my own consulting company um i started working for governor bush for his campaign as his national youth director had a great experience um, learned a lot and, and traveled the country um, during the campaign and now have the amazing opportunity um, to be working with Americans for Prosperity and Generation Opportunity in the, the fight to preserve the American dream. What is Generation Opportunity about? Well, Generation Opportunity is a liberty-loving organization that is really at the tip of the spear in the ride-sharing debate currently. Um, right now, we're pushing back against local governments and union influence that's trying to stifle innovation. Uh, job creation, and overall thing, uh, innovations that are overall improving our lives. So Generation Opportunities on college campuses, they're in the community, they're building a grassroots network of, of young Americans, 18 to 34 young professionals, that are ready to, to fight back against the government. Kirsten Coppell is the founder and president of Galt Solutions. You can follow her at Kirsten underscore Coppell on Twitter, and she is one of Newsmax. 30 most influential Republicans under 30. Congrats again on that. Kirsten, great to have you. Hope you'll come back and hang out with us again. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, team, we're going to hit a break. Much more coming. Stay with me. Sponsor on this hour, team, is silencershop.com. The best place to go, period, to get a silencer is silencershop.com. They offer the best pricing along with the best service. And when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Uh, buying from SilencerShop.com is just like buying local since your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit. So now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. Check it out. Read the testimonials. All the stuff you need is right there on the site, and the staff is happy to help you out. You can reach out to them if you have any additional questions. Go to SilencerShop.com. Again, that is SilencerShop.com. Uh, so... I wanted to talk a bit about the Obama administration legacy. Of course, in the waning days here of his presidency, very final days. Oh, wow. Hey, guys, you want to just take a moment? Obama's not going to be president anymore after Friday. Isn't that amazing? We're fine. It's eight, eight years. It's been a long time. He's been in office a really long time. I feel like I, I've, I've spanned two careers one in intelligence and one in media while the time Obama's been in office or switch from one to the other. 
I, I kind of remember back in 2008 when he won and then early 2009. It was a bit of a blur, and not because I was partying so hard, although maybe that was happening too. But there won't be this voice from the White House that is a constant uh, reminder to all Republicans and conservatives and all people that have a traditional view of the Constitution and government power that you're on the outside now, that you're on the wrong side of history, as he likes to say. It'll be a nice change. Got to say, I'm looking forward to that change. Uh, I'm looking forward to not being in a place where I'm constantly uh, being denigrated by the president, especially the president for all of us, because I don't agree with him on things. But the legacy issue for Obama is going to be litigated now by the many partisans that he has, both leaving the White House and, oh, get ready for it, everybody. Now you're going to see a lot of Obama figures, a lot of individuals who were high up in the administration. They're going to be appearing on cable news. They're going to be getting jobs on TV and writing columns. And so while, in a sense, it's nice that the occupant of the White House is no longer somebody who, well, it's no longer Obama. Uh, on the other side of it, keep in mind that you may be subjected to a lot of Obamaism, particularly through the press, through the various media outlets, because they're all going to be looking for jobs now. And people that are used to being powerful now want to become famous and rich along with being powerful or being near power, I should say. And that's going to be a change. The uh, that That's going to be a change that we see. You also have the fight over the legacy. Interesting piece on the Hill. Ben Rhodes, who is the Obama administration's deputy national security advisor, said that the, this is according to the Hill.com, that the threat of impeachment was a factor in Obama's decision not to pursue a tougher intervention policy in Syria. So Obama, the Obama administration that, went on its own to negotiate with Iran and said this is executive prerogative, is also saying now, because Syria is such a disaster, such a debacle, that, oh, well, it was those pesky Republicans and the threat of the possible threat of impeachment for Obama's would-be actions or could-have-been actions in Syria, that's what stopped it. There's just no shame here at all. They know that his Syria policy, as we have U.S. special forces on the ground and a ground force that is U.S. supplied and receiving air support, which many of us said should have been done three or four years ago, as that is happening right now in Syria, really tough to say that Obama's do the minimum, do nothing, leave it to the U.N. policy is the height of wisdom. The second coming of Talleyrand, this guy is not. Uh, and yet here he is telling us that it's because... The Republicans, once again, were thwarting his agenda. He also defended the Obama red line, which I don't know anybody who defends this. This is this Ben Rhodes guy. He says that, well, quote, well, drawing the line actually did provide the basis for a diplomatic effort to remove the chemical weapons program peacefully. Uh, OK, so that's that's a true statement, maybe. But who cares? They still use chemical weapons dozens of times in Syria and all that the removal of chemical weapons officially did, or the official removal of chemical weapons did, is allow the Syrians then a free hand, or a freer hand, to drop as many bombs on civilians as they want and just use old dumb bombs, conventional munitions, to flatten apartment buildings and whole city blocks, 
uh, using these barrel bombs, dropping them out of helicopters on crowded areas of the city to just kill as many people as possible. How the administration can now stand up and and do some chest thumping on how brave and smart they were with their policy here is just beyond me. But now it's a question of marketability. See, the Obama legacy isn't just an issue for Obama. It's for everybody leaving that administration. They want to get their narratives out there that this was a really successful presidency, that Obama did great things, and the people who worked for him were the A-team. They were really smart. They got it done. When those of us who are paying attention look at the reality of this, and much of what Obama did is going to be quickly undone by the Trump administration, the Affordable Care Act is on life support, and they may pull the plug any day now, and we're going to see all sorts of policy shifts around the world and here at home because Obama created zero consensus, built no bridges, and constantly engaged in zero-sum, scorched-earth politics against the other side. That's, that's really his legacy. And hid behind an appealing persona and personal story and the media acting as a virtual phalanx for him for being held accountable for any of this. You just ask someone who thinks Obama did a great job. Give me one truly bipartisan, bipartisan act that Obama did. Give me one meaningful concession he made to the other side, even if it didn't come to fruition, but to get things done. And all you have with Obama is when the Democrats are in charge, they ran through Obamacare. It's sheer, blatant partisanship. When they lose the House, it's Republicans are obstructionist. And when they lose the Senate, it's, well, I'm just going to do it on my own because Congress won't do what I say. That is a true timeline. That is the actual trajectory of the Obama administration. From one-party rule to obstructionists to who needs the Congress. That is Obama's legacy. That and pardoning a traitor and a terrorist or a commuting, pardon me, (laughs) pardon me, a uh, commuting the sentences of a traitor and a terrorist. All right, team, third hour coming up, more national security and also a little taste of Freestyle Friday on a Wednesday. Ooh, what's that going to be? If you want to know, you're going to have to stay with me. Also love the chat with any of you who want to call in. You know what the phone number is, but I like to say it, 888-900-3393. Third hour in the Freedom Hut, just a few minutes away. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. It's hour three. Let's get into some spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is Spy Time. We got Mike Baker with us now. He is a former CIA covert operations officer and president of Diligence LLC, a global intelligence and security firm. He is at MB Company Man on Twitter. Mike, great to have you. Oh, thanks, Buck. Good, uh, good talking to you. It's been a while since we last got together. 
Yeah, brother, it's good good to hear from you. So let's. I want to get your your the rundown with you on a whole bunch of things here. First off, the the news from the last twenty four that we have to hit this commutation of Manning sentence. You had a top secret clearance. I had a top secret clearance. What do you think about all this? Uh, well, I think it's disgusting. I think it's uh, shameful. I think it's um, unfortunately it's not surprising. So I think maybe that start out that way, uh, but it. Um, it's, it, it's, I think Obama's pandering to the hard left at its worst, I think is what's happened here. And, you know, given how upset he was and continues to be over the hacking of the Podesta emails and DNC, um, apparently that's where he draws the line. He doesn't draw the line at handing over a trove of classified documents that then resulted in a variety of bad things for people uh for our national security interests and the obama administration's rationale for this you think is what i mean do you think the lbgtq aspect of formerly bradley now chelsea manning the the politics around that played a big role in this or you think that this might have happened even without uh, mr manning's transition so i think i think it played a role i don't know that it was a big role but i think it undoubtedly i think anyone who says it didn't i think it's just uh, being willfully naive, I think it played a role. I think the fact that he tried to off himself a couple of times, um, you know, probably did that. It created sort of this this image of this poor, uh, mistaken, you know, confused waif. Um, that uh, you know, if it was a a less sympathetic, perhaps, character for that you know portion of society that looks at that and says, "Oh my God, we have to help this individual." Um, so I think that played a role. I think. Um, it's also it's it's an indication, I think, that the the, the outgoing president uh, never really has had either an appreciation, perhaps a full understanding of of how um, how the world out there works. You know, I, I mean, I think I, I'm not saying he's not a smart guy; he's a very smart guy. Um, but I think, in real terms, you know, to dismiss what Manning did and the consequences of that and what happened. Um, I think shows either a willful ignorance or, or a naivete. Now, what's your take as as a former uh, agency ops guy, Mike? What's your take on the former MI6 individual who is reportedly, based on what we see in the news, behind this dossier, the dossier, which is now the word everyone has to use for this, on yes, Trump? Yeah. This the, this whole thing seemed super sketchy to me from go. And I'll be honest, you know, the inclusion of this information in an intel briefing also struck me as odd beyond explanation, unless there was something political going on. But I want your take on on just that whole situation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the look, I I, I spent, what, 17 years um, with the agency and the operations group. I spent uh, since then, you know, over a dozen years building up a a private intelligence organization um, in the commercial sector that has offices in London and a variety of places around the world. Um, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and the U.K. I started my private business with a very good friend of mine who came out of the uh, British Intel Service. I guess the reason for saying all that is I know the, the world pretty well. And I can tell you that the world of political opposition research is full of sketchy, dodgy individuals putting out a lot of crap. And um, so, first of all, the material itself, or the dossier, I guess you're right, we have to use that term, is, uh, 
is is just a it's it's a load of crap. And um, I love the idea that you know the, the the media that was desperate to show how serious this dossier was. Um, they they also part of their narrative was well, but look, uh, Christopher Steele he, he he was so concerned about the information that he worked for free for a period of time. Well, of course he did because no one's going to pay him for this crap. So, you know, I I, I think there's that to, to to start with. I agree with you that including it was. I've never heard or seen something like that before, where you would take um, something that was so lacking in credibility, lacking in backing and sourcing, and, and fold it into a very, very serious top-level uh, intelligence briefing. And, so, and just, that, to, just so to add this in, Mike, that's already out there by everyone's admission in the public domain, circulating on the unclassified side between people's private email accounts all over D.C., right? So it wasn't even... Yeah, yeah. This we can't verify this, but hey, this is super sensitive. No one's heard of this. You should know about it. It was yeah. This has been making the rounds for months. A lot of journalists have it. Just wanted to just want to give you a heads up. It just seemed bizarre. Yeah, it is. It is bizarre. There's no other way to put it. And and the, the idea that you know we've we've heard uh, that was uh, given. The reason was given was that you know somehow we just wanted to make sure that the president elect was aware of this information and could what act on it. Uh, you think so? What are you talking about? I I think it's you know that that part of it uh, is is very uh, odd. But uh, and again, I'd, it's above my pay grade to figure out why their specific reasons, uh, what their specific reasons actually were for doing it. Maybe they were. Who knows? Maybe they were just being thorough and they thought we'll, we'll do this. And uh, it, but I'm it's it's I can't think of any other word for it. It's just really really odd. Wouldn't be the first time if it happened that my fellow analysts made a made a boo boo, but I digress. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you about the <laughs> incoming. Yeah, we've we've been known to make a mistake here and there, as you know. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about the incoming Trump team. New York Times today writing a piece because anything that makes the Trump administration look bad before it's even administration uh, makes the New York Times look good, I suppose. Trump mm. national security team gets a slow start. They're saying they're, that the Obama administration has written two hundred seventy five. Uh, briefing papers, over a thousand pages of classified material, according to the Times here. And they don't know if the Trump people have read any of it. And they're saying that the whole transition on the national security side is a mess. What do you think? Well, I think that's not correct. Um, I know some of the folks that are coming in and filling in slots in the sort of the second and third tier. Um, and, you know, they're very good people. They're very focused. They've got a lot of drive and, and, you know, they, uh, they're very professional. So, um, I, I sort of this the self righteous attitude of the uh, of the Obama administration about the transition is it's a lot of crap as well. Look, the, the Bush administration, um, and uh, you know, I, I know a lot of the folks that were in the the previous administration, they did an outstanding job of of paving the way for President Obama to come in um, after his his first election win, and I mean they worked. Uh, their asses off to ensure that that transition would go smoothly. This administration, the Obama administration, not so much in terms of doing everything they can. So I'm not buying this idea that they're all sitting around producing briefing papers and they're, they're just waiting for somebody from the incoming administration to show up so that they can you know, uh, help them out. I, I, I'm not buying that at all. I think they're being, um, if they're not being obstructionist, they're just not being helpful. They're being petulant uh, and they're all, busy um looking for other jobs now now the relationship between the trump team trump himself and putin specifically but just the russian 
government more generally has gotten a lot of media coverage recently, of course, because of the hack of Podesta's email account, the DNC account. Everyone is now all in a tizzy about Russia, at least in the media. They're freaked out about this, constantly running stories on uh, people have never learned so much in their lives about the FSB and the Kremlin and the Duma and Putin. And so this is, this is a constant experts out there now. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of people that are brushing up on the Russian. Uh, but I want to ask you what you think the administration's posture should be. Uh, the fact that Putin is is a strong man and a thug and that Russia plays dirty. This isn't new at all. This is just Russia. So I think it's interesting that they're exactly. reporting on this like there's been some big change. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very bizarre, surreal situation right now where you have, you know, someone like Samantha Power, you know, exiting uh, from her position as the U.N. ambassador, giving a speech talking about how, you know, they've, they've really been trying to, you know, be tough on Russia. And, you know, Russia's been constantly, you know, um, uh, breaking with, uh, you know, world community goals and, and you know, the, uh, somehow giving the impression that the Obama administration has really held their feet to the fire of all these years. That's, that's something new. Uh, look, the reason why Russia has been in, engaged in sort of the shenanigans and aggressive behavior they have been uh, is because for the past eight years there's been no pushback um, of any real substance. They like that the current administration likes to point to the sanctions. Well, you know, in reality, those sanctions have not damaged Putin uh, in any significant manner. They've been they've found workarounds. So, you know, and you're right. Russia's been doing this forever. You go back to 1941, and and Back when the, uh, the the Russians still had a pact with the Nazis, an alliance with the Nazis, and the Russians spent at that time a great deal of time, money, and effort here in the U.S. influencing U.S. public opinion and political activity. Because what did they want? They wanted the U.S. to stay out of the war, and so they were engaged in buying off journalists and placing articles. They were engaged in setting up associations, supposedly independent groups that were supporting isolationist policies. But they were funded by the Russians. They were engaged in meddling and, and directing union activity uh, on behalf of this, this agenda of theirs. So they've been doing this for, for a very long time, as you pointed out. Um, I think what you have to do with, with, with Putin is just treat him as sort of the simple cat that he is. Right? He's always going to do what he believes is in the best interest of Russia. He, he always will believe that the collapse of the Soviet Union was disastrous, and he'll want to put back in place some – level of influence um, he's not going to do it solely by territory but other ways um, and so as long as we deal with him in that manner I think we're fine you know and and sure that means you know, when we can let's try to make sure the relationships on you know steady footing but we should never and this administration and to be fair the Bush administration you know they somehow thought that they could work with him and that we we would have similar interests and then and those interests would align on a regular basis and that we could work together and that, that's just not going to be the case and when it comes to the intelligence community, a lot has been made of the feud between Trump and the IC. I try to point out that it's really Trump and what he presumes are very senior leaks from the people running different agencies in the IC. You know, Trump isn't calling out every every GS10 employee and saying, you know, you're a clown, you're the worst. Right? I mean, it's not really it's it's really between people that are political appointees and the incoming administration, or at least that's how I read it. Uh, what do you think the what do, if you were advising? Uh, the the incoming president on what could be done with the IC. He's thinking about, uh, at least the reports, he may restructure some of it. They may shrink the size of the NSC. They may make the intel community a little smaller, a little leaner and meaner. Do you, do you see room for that? Does that strike you as 
area for improvement? What do you think? What do you think about some some of the changes that that he's talked about? Yeah, and no, I think it's it's a great question. It's a great point, and I think that uh, look, these things have been discussed over the years, right? So when and, and some of this was lost, right? It, it got lost as it often does in his in, in, in sort of the storm that surfaces around each tweet. So he has this perceived battle with the intelligence community, you know, in, in, in the Twitter sphere. And what gets lost is that during the course of those few days, they were talking, the incoming administration was talking about things such as, you know, should we look at the effectiveness of the DNI? Does it need to be restructured or dismantled? Um, we should look at devoting more time and effort to uh, the, the human reporting from the CIA rather than, you know, the technical collection. Uh, those are things that, that have been discussed, not you know just now, but over the past decade. And it's it's cyclical, certainly with the CIA. And you know this uh, that I mean, you think after 9/11, you know, suddenly you know the command came down from on high that look, you guys got to you got you got to get more cadre, you got to get more operations officers who can actually go out and recruit humans, as opposed to this reliance on S and T. And and that so that that happens periodically. Uh, I think those things are all good. I think that. We should look at the effectiveness of of the uh, the DNI. I think that was put together not necessarily in the knee jerk fashion, but it was certainly put together um, after under duress. Under <laughs> duress, exactly. And I think that you know it, it would be sound to do a professional assessment of the effectiveness of it. It would be sound to look at potential redundancies within the intel community and see whether we can, as you said, you know, make it sharper, meaner, leader. Then, I, I, so those things are smart, and I think that. Um, they, you know, if they do that in the proper fashion, and if they, you know, I, what I would love to see is I'd love them to see them go over to Langley. I'd love to see them have a have a, you know, have a a meeting over there. You know, all hands meeting and and uh, you know just create that that environment where the folks know that they've got top cover, where they know that there's an appreciation and there's an interest because you know everybody's human. And even though I think people are smart enough to understand it on one level, I think you know that you know that the notion. That they're coming in with kind of a predetermined attitude towards the intel community. He's got to work to write that a little bit, I think. I hope he does. I hope he does, too. Mike Baker is a former CIA covert operations officer. He's the president of Diligence, which is a global intelligence and security firm. He is at MB Company Man on Twitter. My Langley brother, Mike, great to have you, sir. Come back soon. Thank you, man. Love the show. Thank you very much, Buck. Take care. Take care, brother. Uh, 888-900-3393-TEAM. We will be right back. Team, dry your tears or not. Obama's last official speech as president, I think, is underway right now. Can we can we just put him on for a second? I don't get too nostalgic, team. Um, but I have enjoyed working with all of you. Uh, that does not, of course, mean that I've enjoyed every story that you have filed. Uh, but that's I'm the point of this, this relationship. You're not supposed to be... Syncophants, you're supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to ask me tough questions. You're not supposed to be complimentary, uh, but you're supposed to cast a critical eye on folks who hold enormous power. But they do. And make sure that we are accountable to the people who sent us here. And you have done that. And you've uh, done it, for the most part, uh, in ways that uh, I could appreciate for fairness even if I didn't always agree with your conclusions um, and having you in this building uh, has made this place work better it keeps us honest it makes us work harder you have, how much easier uh, could the press have gone made us on Obama than they think did? about that's a, that's a 
how we are doing what we do and whether or not we're able to deliver uh, on what's been requested uh, by our constituents. I'm hoping he's going to talk about uh, Chelsea Manning. And, for example, every time you've asked, why haven't you cured Ebola yet, or why is there that still that hole in the Gulf, uh, it has given me the ability to go back to my team and say, will you get this solved before the next press conference? Um, I've spent a lot of time on my, I don't uh, think in my farewell that address talking about the state of our democracy. Uh, it goes without saying that essential to that is a free press. That is part of how this place, this country, this grand experiment in self-government has to work. Uh, it doesn't work if we don't have a well-informed citizenry and you are the conduit through which they receive uh, the information about what's taking place in the halls of power. So America needs you and our democracy what's needs you. this big hug to the press we corps? I didn't know this was establish a baseline of facts talk and evidence that we can All right. use as a starting point for the kind of reasoned and informed debates that ultimately lead to progress. And so my hope is, is that you will continue uh, with the same tenacity that you showed us uh, to oh yeah, they were tenacious. Do the hard Obama work of tenaciously getting to the bottom of stories and getting them right. All right, and to push <laughs> yeah. those. Of I can't us take any more of this. Cla uh, it's a classic last Obama speech here, just telling people things that aren't really accurate or true, and also if they are accurate or true, it's so obvious that he doesn't need to tell us any of this. But Obama thinks that everything he says is the most profound way it's ever been said. So. Just reminding you all, this is what we're this is what we're leaving behind. Dry your tears, my friends. It's all going to be okay. You will survive without yet another Obama lecture. I promise you. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined by Dr. Levi Tillman. He is the author of The Great Race: The Global Quest for the Car of the Future. It's an analysis of the rise of electric vehicles and the intersection between policy and innovation in the global auto industry. Dr. Tillman, great to have you. Hey, Buck. How you doing? Good. So I'm reading all these fascinating uh, think pieces and just general news reports about the coming revolution with electric cars and with ride share through driverless cars. And I, this is an area you cover what is real here? What's happening? How soon is it going to happen? And how is it going to transform the country? I know that's a lot to throw at you, so just take them one by one. Yeah, sure. Don't worry about it. So, you know, I think there are really two major challenges that we're confronting here. And the first challenge is obviously a technical challenge. And people have been really stunned how quickly we've made progress in that realm. But the second challenge is really a regulatory challenge. If you want to have autonomous vehicles, you need to have rules of the road. You need to have technical standards. And that's something that the Obama administration has actually done a terrific job of making headway on. The Department of Transportation released a set of guidelines this fall that included a, a series of recommendations for autonomous vehicle manufacturers, as well as some sample guidelines for states to follow. Um, and, and I think most people would agree that that is going to be as big of a challenge going forward as the technology side of the equation. So on the on the ride share side of this, then what got me thinking we wanted to have a an, an expert on cars of the future on today was this piece I saw. I think it was the Wall Street Journal earlier in the week, might have been last week, 
about how Uber and Lyft and there's all these digital ride share services that are out there right now. And in the future, it may even be the case that people don't want to own a car because it's so easy to get the car you want to come pick you up and take you wherever you want to go. And you don't have to deal with maintenance and garage and all the rest of it. It may at least change the car culture pretty dramatically. Some people are very attached to that notion of, you know, you own your vehicle, it's your vehicle, and that's what you're going to do. Uh, but that may be shifting. How far off is that is that future of having Uber with uh, electric cars that don't have drivers that can pick you up anywhere and drop you off wherever you want to go? Oh, that, that's exactly right, Buck. The future we're going to see is one that's going to be more and more autonomous, shared, and electric. And the reason for that really comes down to the economics. Um, today, um, I own a car, but I drive that car less than 4% of the time, which means this big, expensive piece of capital is sitting unutilized on the street for the vast majority of the day. A rideshare company like Uber is going to be able to own an autonomous vehicle, um, which means they're not going to have to pay for a driver, which is by far the most expensive part of that equation. And they're going to be able to utilize that autonomous vehicle 50 or 60% of the time, which means that that one autonomous vehicle is going to be performing work of 30, 50, maybe even 100 non-autonomous vehicles. And the reason why I say 100 is because the other thing they're going to do is they're going to put more people into those autonomous vehicles via um, applications like Uber Pool or Lyft Line. Every time they put another individual into that car, they change the equation on emissions, they change the equation on fuel costs, and they change the equation on their own profit um, because that changes the, the denominator um, of their cost. Can you tell people who uh, listening may not know much about Uber Pool in particular uh, because some it doesn't exist in, in all cities and towns across the country? Just give everyone a, a quick rundown on some of the way that they, these ride services currently operate and what they can do. Sure, yeah, it's really clever. So we've talked about carpooling for years, but there is a huge transaction cost in most forms of carpooling. I have to find someone who wants to go the same direction as I'm going at the same time. And what Uber Pool and Liftline do is they use advanced routing algorithms to pair people who are close to each other and are going to drive along more or less the same route. And what that means is you can dramatically cut the price of transportation while um, still being more profitable than you would if you were just giving one person a ride. So this is all driven by the economics at the end of the day. I've also seen some reports on how different kinds of vehicles because of advances in miniaturization of battery technology and the improvements in just in, in electrical engine versus an internal combustion engine there are now carbon fiber scooters that can take you uh, that can go 15 miles an hour that weigh about 20 or 30 pounds uh, and can take you for dozens of miles at a time before they need another charge I live here in New York City. There's this bicycle rideshare program called City Bike. I think a lot of people would be even more interested in rideshare and these sorts of uh, these sorts of new ideas for getting around if you didn't have to work so hard. <laughs> if you could just hop on and you're on a little scooter or you're on a, they have some of these things that look like uh, advanced go karts, really. That seems to be another way that people are going to be getting around the city, although there will still be traffic. Right. But I just wanted you to, to hit on some of these 
electric vehicles of the future that aren't even necessarily cars could change the game, especially in countries like China and other places where they have different layouts in the cities and all the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Buck. I mean, there has been just extraordinary progress in automotive technology over the past 10 years. And my guess would be in the next 10 years, we're going to see more innovation in the mobility space than we have in the last 100 years. And it's interesting because a lot of that innovation has come through government regulation, through things like raising the fuel economy standards, which has forced automakers to build vehicles that are more efficient, or things like California's electric vehicle mandate, where they tell automakers that if they want to sell non-electric vehicles in the state, they also have to sell electric vehicles. And by building that market out and getting increased scale in that market, we've been able to drop the price of battery electric uh, vehicles, specifically the battery in those vehicles, by more than 80% since 2008. And, and if we stay on the same track, they'll cost the same amount as internal combustion engine vehicles by about 2020. So this is a, a huge win for the Obama administration and a huge win for the, the power of policy in driving innovation in the global economy. So by 2020, there'll be relative uh, parity between the cost. Will, will that also be true of the, the vehicle output in terms of speed and, and uh, distances? The I was going to say fuel economy, although that's not really it, right, because it'll be electric. But the ability, <laughs> yeah, will, will they be able to go as far, as fast, as reliably in a few years? as? Because that's the thing right now. Cause people just want, they want a car that goes the speed they're used to, that's going to turn on when they want it to turn on and that they can refuel when they need to refuel. Nobody wants to be the guy driving around at midnight with their family in the car saying, where's the electric charger station, right? I mean, th these sure, are the problems sure. that they currently have with electric vehicles. When does that right. start to go away, and how is that going to go away? Well, so in terms of performance, electric vehicles are actually terrific. Um, they're, they're better than internal combustion engine vehicles. If you go out and buy a Tesla P90D, uh, that's an expensive car, but it has acceleration that's comparable to a supercar that might cost five or 10 times as much. So I don't think performance is a problem. Um, range has gone up dramatically. Um, now you can purchase a Chevy Bolt, which takes you 240 miles on a single charge. And most people think that that pretty much solves the issues um, regarding electric vehicle battery range. And, and that Bolt, it's not an expensive car. After the tax credit that you get for purchasing an electric vehicle, it's $30,000. And, and as we go forward, those costs are going to continue coming down uh, very dramatically. Um, and, and finally, in terms of charging speed, you know, I think that that is an issue that has to be addressed. A lot of people can charge their electric vehicles at home in a garage, but if you don't have a garage, if you don't have a place that you can park that vehicle overnight, that is, that's a significant challenge because you need somewhere where you can sit your electric vehicle for a while. The fastest charging is about 30 minutes, and that's still too long for a lot of people. Uh, but there are technology solutions that are, are being worked on to that. Um, my company actually is consulting for a really fantastic EV charging startup uh, that I think is going to deploy a solution that should largely obviate that concern. Now, for, so for people listening, whether they're in Dallas, Tallahassee, Toledo, or Sacramento, and everything in between and around, uh, how long is it before you can step out your front door with your smartphone, press a button, an electric vehicle without a driver picks you up and takes you where you want to go, and it's charged to your credit card, and that's it. Because that seemed to be the vision that people are laying out for Uber, which is already a multi-multi-billion dollar company, and it's going to have huge effects on the car industry. And how, how far away is that reality? 
based on what you're seeing so, now? You know, it's not just Uber. It's Ford. It's Tesla. It's Toyota. And it's Google. And all of these companies realize that the mobility market is going to be a much bigger opportunity than the auto manufacturing market. Today, the auto manufacturing market is about $2.3 trillion in the future. Um, companies, though, are going to have to transform into mobility companies, which is, which is great because that market is $5.4 trillion and growing. And so it's a much bigger pie that they can get a piece of. And, and I would guess that a lot of the answer to your question really depends on smart regulation and on people embracing the power of smart, pragmatic regulations to facilitate that deployment. But my guess would be no later than 2025. Dr. Dr. Tillman, usually regulation is a dirty word here on this show, but we will we'll let you we'll let it, let it go because of your expertise. <laughs> well, you know, and we I, find I, we I, find I, the subject it, interesting. I, I one more for you, know, though. It, speaking it, of it markets, really, it, really, it really shouldn't be a dirty word. But no, no, I, it, it, that, that's a joke, Doc. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm our, kidding. Our, it's OK. But I, I, but <laughs> I want to ask you one more thing. Uh, employment. Our, Uber our currently employs, just, I think, a couple million, a couple million people. If all this happens, what then what, we're going to lose a lot of jobs, right? Isn't, isn't that also a concern with the, the, the future of transportation leveraging Google and Tesla and everything else? Oh, my. Well, let, let me just say, Buck, that regulation is very, very important. If we didn't have regulation, we'd be getting sick from the food that we eat. We wouldn't be able to trust the medicine that we take um, because we wouldn't know <laughs> if it was actually effective. And quite frankly, we wouldn't be able to drive down our streets because everything from the lines down the road, the stoplights are the product of regulation. I know, and Doc. I, I'm not. I'm not actually an anarchist. I was. I was kidding about regulation, but I would like you to speak about employment while we've got you. We've only got about a minute and change. Sure thing. So definitely, there are going to be huge issues regarding labor markets. Uh, my company works on those issues quite a bit. Um, right now, one of the big problems that people are looking towards is truckers and what's going to happen with their jobs. Um, in 30 states, trucking is actually the largest employer, and autonomous trucking is just on the horizon. So, so that's an issue that we're going to have to confront going forward. And unfortunately, um, companies are geared towards one thing, which is making money, and that means cutting out labor. So again, you're going to have to have governments in there making sure that people are somehow going to be employed and going to be able to have jobs, even as automation and roboticization cuts out humans from a lot of these processes. All right. Dr. Levi Tillman is the author of The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future. Uh, thanks for joining us, Levi. We appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate having you having me on. All right. There we go. Well, just regulated our way out of this interview. Back in a few. Very funny reactions from some of you. Uh, look, I, I'm willing to have people of different different political philosophy on the show, especially if they're going to be in an area of, of expertise um, that's specific to something they're writing about. Or that was just really funny. I'm like, dude, am I really gonna am I really gonna get lectured on regulation right now? <laughs> it was actually a joke. Just tell me about just tell me about electric cars. I try, I try. Oh gosh, that was uh, that was interesting. Um, with the left, even even when you think you're you're reaching a, a non you're having a non political discussion, it so quickly can get all political and uncomfortable. And I try to be you know I invite people into my home, which the Freedom Hut is my home, and I want to be nice to everybody. Um, except I never get angry left wing callers, which I would like. It'd be fun to get some some left wingers who want to who want to really argue about some stuff. That I'd be up for, but and not too much of it though. 
Sometimes it can be entertaining. Uh, the New York Times reporting the Earth sets a, a temperature record for the third straight year. Um, this is what the Times reports on this one. Marking another milestone for a changing planet. Planet's always changing. Scientists reported on Wednesday that the Earth reached its highest temperature on record in 2016, trouncing a record set only a year earlier, which beat one set in 2014. It's the first time in the modern era of global warming data that temperatures have blown past the previous record three years in a row. Okay, so if it's getting hotter every year, which it's not, but if it is, can we go back to calling it global warming? Why do we call it climate change? I think they should have to stick to this. Because if we see that next year or the year after that, there is no change or there is no warming, I want to know why. Because we're supposed to be getting warmer every year. That's why, it's that's why it's global warming, right? This is what they say the science tells us. Quote, the data shows that politicians cannot wish the problem away. The earth is heating up, a point long beyond serious scientific dispute. This is a quote from this. Well, if that's the case, why, why have they gone from global warming to climate change if it's so clear that it's getting hotter why can't we just say that it's getting hotter why do we have to say that the temperature is in a period of flux oh because they needed to rebrand this whole thing while they figured out how to massage the data or change the data or alter it so that then they could start saying it was getting hotter again this is i wish we could have discussions scientific discussions that are actually based in science but just turns into another political food fight why is it not getting hotter oh because we need more regulations maybe oh snap crazy uh team thank you for listening to today's show as always i'll be back tomorrow on the next day of course um let me know your thoughts on facebook.com slash buck sexton uh, looking forward to hanging with you tomorrow as always shields high You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.